Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Ben Jealous, the president of People for the American Way, PFAW.org, the website, visiting scholar at the Annenberg School at Penn, former uh, president of the NAACP, former candidate for governor of Maryland, and uh, Ben Jealous is his Twitter handle. Ben, welcome back to the program. I'm curious what, you know, I know that you're tracking a whole bunch of stuff at PFAW, and you yourself as well. I'm curious your thoughts on these police who keep falsifying police reports, covering up murders, calling them medical distress, um, uh, lying about what's on the body cams, and then entire police departments like we're seeing with the, with the Louisiana State Police for two years, covering up what uh, certainly appears to me to be a, a, a murder of an unarmed black man by a bunch of white cops. What's going on with this? So yeah, this all goes back to first principles, what your mom taught you when you were a kid, which is you can't be good if you're protecting your friends who are doing bad. Right. In the law, we call that being an accessory after the fact. And the simple fact is that while only about 10% of the officers are doing bad things in the country, about 80% are willing to protect them by staying silent. There is a no snitching culture amongst the cops. And we have to break that. And it's the unions that enforce it. So what you see in Louisiana is a murder. And every single officer who knew about it and didn't tell is an accessory to murder after the fact. Those officers need to be prosecuted from top to bottom to send a message to every officer in this country that if you murder somebody, we're coming for you. And if you protect some, and if you protect an officer who murders somebody, you're going to prison too. I completely agree with that sentiment. And in fact, I, I would think it should go as high as those videos ever went. I, you know, if it went yeah. all the way up to the attorney general's office, it, that, that person should be prosecuted as well. I'm totally with you on all that. Do you see any evidence that the state of Louisiana is thinking like that? Well, I mean, I think history would suggest probably not. Uh, you know, that's when it comes into the federal government. That's when it comes, frankly, to popular demand. And you know, when you look at the reforming of the police over centuries in our country, it's always come from the bottom up. The last major crisis to be successfully dealt with, if you will, was the problem of lynching in this country. Federal legislation failed. State legislation, a little more complex, but ultimately failed. 
what succeeded were local leaders organizing local campaigns saying to local politicians, you won't get through the primary or you won't get through the general or we will primary you or we will just simply run something better against you if you don't get with the program and get this lynching problem under control. It's the same tactic that has to be used right now. It's what we're focused on, the people for the American way and supporting local candidates and the work that we do is to make sure that uh, ultimately the civil rights community's values are sort of mainstreamed into local politics and people understand that you can't both remain mayor and cover up the murder of a civilian by the police. At the same time, we're hearing stories about how uh, not just the Republican Party, although there is money coming out of the Republican Party, but also uh, massive amounts of money coming out of the Koch network and some of these other right-wing billionaire networks to fund candidates for school boards all around the country to make sure that black yeah. history doesn't get taught or the genocide of Native Americans doesn't get taught, and to go after, in particular, trans Americans, but, you know, in general, the, the spectrum of LGBTQ folks. We're hearing about the way that states are being basically rigged and, and, you know, way beyond gerrymandering, but obviously that's, you know, a big piece of it, so that, you know, regardless of how the people vote, and now we're seeing this with these new voter suppression laws that have been put into place in, what, four states now, where the Republicans yep. are, are saying, it doesn't, you know, when the, after the vote is done here in Georgia, we're going to take a look at that vote in Fulton County where all those black people live. And we'll, we'll just decide how many of those votes we're going to count and how many we're not going to count. We're going to decide what's a good ballot, what's a spoiled ballot. Yeah. I mean, that's the insanity that's happening right now. If they can do that to our vote and they can kill us with their, I mean, where do we start with all this? Well, you know, the um, again, we have to go back to first principles when it, when it comes to our democracy and the voter suppression legislation that's happening to facilitate what you're talking about in places like Georgia, right? More than 300 bills, more than 40 states. The only way to really deal that ultimately is effective federal legislation. We got to pass the For the People Act. We got to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Frankly, while we're at it, we should also make DC a state. But certainly, HR one, HR four have to get passed right away because of the crisis happening in more Which means ends the filibuster. The country. And that means we have to end the filibuster. And that means, honestly, that we have to put maximum pressure on Biden and on Schumer yep. to put maximum pressure on Manchin and Cinema. You know, it, it's easy for all of us to feel pretty powerless if it comes down to two you know, senators from, from small states. We need to remember just how politics works in Washington. Ultimately, the people have the two people who have the greatest power to put pressure on Two senators is the majority leader of their party, Chuck Schumer, and the president of the United States. All of our power should be, sorry, all of our pressure should be, if we're not in Arizona, if we're not in West Virginia, most of us aren't, should be directed on the president and Mr. Schumer to make sure that they put maximum pressure and actually get the results that we need. I'm, I'm, on I'm completely with you, and I've been, I've been singing this song for a while now and, and suggesting that if people want to contact Schumer, 202-224-3121 gets you the congressional switchboard, and you can ask for his office, and they'll connect you directly. You can also ask for your own two senators, and regardless of what party they may be, let them know your opinions on this. And the, the best way to contact the White House, apparently the comment line is spotty at best, is by going to whitehouse.gov. They've got a, a, a slash contact. They've got a contact thing where you can fill it out and send it back. Does people for the American way have tools to lean on these people? And do you know of better ways than the two that I just mentioned to put pressure on Schumer and President Biden? No, what you said is exactly spot on. We actually just sent a congressional directory to all of our million plus 
members, like a physical one, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of work each of us needs to do to make sure that our voice is heard. We at People for people can sign up at pfaw.org. Just give us your email, get engaged with you. You're a member with us if you just take an action with us a year. It doesn't, you don't need to pay money, although we do really, frankly, build this movement off of everyday folks giving $20, $30. But the best thing right now we can do is to put pressure on Schumer, put pressure on President Biden to, to end the filibuster. And giving them a call the way that you suggested is exactly the perfect way to do it. Yeah. I know that you've got a lot on your plate. Is the, What are the other issues that people for the American way is working on that you'd like to highlight right now? Well, you know, it's really these two issues. Public safety and democracy are our two big issues. The main thing that we are urging people to do in their communities when it comes to public safety, which we opened up about, is to, is to push your city to do what Ithaca is doing, which is to actually put a civilian over public safety and then split the department into two divisions, one that is a uniformed armed division and one that that is an ununiformed, unarmed set of first responder social workers to deal with that half of police work that's actually social work. That's brilliant. And it's also kind of in line with the founder's idea of putting civilians in charge of the military. I mean, you know, it's like this, this is this Amen. is this is not rocket science. It's not brand new. It's uh, Ben Jealous, the uh, president of People for the American Way, PFAW.org. Ben Jealous on Twitter. Ben, thanks a lot for dropping by. It's great talking with you. All right, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good one. So, you know, I think that this is like one of the literally existential questions of our time that really we're very much not looking at is that this is in our founding document. This should be the DNA of this country. We don't like teach in our elementary schools in civics class or history class or just kind of basic stuff. We don't teach the idea that, oh yeah, Democracy. Mike in Lamita, California. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to us on KPFK. What, what's on your mind today? Hey, Dom. Uh, I just called up to be disagreeable. About okay, something. go for it. Yeah, you keep equating Confederacy and Nazis. And while they were uh, co equivalent in their racial views and promoting the same lie that uh, human beings are different from one another, the two systems had a very big difference in one term, and that is uh, state centralism. You remember uh, Jefferson Davis's epitaph for the Confederacy? I don't. He said, if, he said if the Confederacy fails, the epitaph should be put on its tombstone is died of a theory. And the theory, of course, is states' rights. Mm-hmm. Now, they had situations where there was heavy fighting in one state and they needed war material from an adjoining confederate state and the governor of that rich confederate state would say no no this is our our this is you know our state's equipment the confederate army can't have it that's that was one of the reasons that the confederate efforts failed so in that respect, I say they're very different sort of uh, animals. You did not have during uh, the Third Reich, uh, Thuringia or uh, Bavaria saying, no, 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 we, we can't go along with that here. We're just going to opt out. Of course, 
if they had done that, they would have been, you know, hoisted up uh, without trial. On are you, are you saying, gibbets. Mike, that, you know, because when I speak of the Confederacy, I speak of it as basically a nation. I mean, you know, this is a group of states that got together and said, we are an ethno state. We are a state that is defined by white power and white supremacy and uh, a collection of states, but we're operating as a country, the Confederated States of America, the CSA. I must be missing something because Germany, you know, had a bunch of states and they all operated together too. What's the difference? The thing is that the uh, Confederate states would refuse to cooperate. With each other? Yes. I didn't know that. With regard to what? With you're regard talking to about war material and things like that, transportation, but why? Yeah. Why would they refuse to cooperate with each other? Pure greed and selfishness, just like Republicans today. <laughs> Okay. Uh, can you can you uh, point me to a good history on this, Mike? I'd like to learn more about it. Well, uh, I hear the music coming up, so yeah. I'll just rowing off with this uh, little riddle. How is William Rehnquist a comic opera judge? I don't know, but I would like a history of this, the Confederate States not going along with each other. What's, your, what's the answer to your riddle, Mike? Well, I'll let, I'll let anyone that wants to look it up, look it up. Okay, thanks a lot. We have accomplished democracy in the United States of America. It's imperfect. It's been screwed. You know, it's been screwed up in some ways throughout our history. It's uh, it's not well balanced. You know, the electoral college, all this kind of stuff. But we have put into place the democracy that we declared in 1776. The second thing that we declared in 1776, though, that you know, to quote the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and of course. Back in that day, man and mankind were the words that today we would use for people and humankind. That declaration in 1776 that all people are created equal obviously was not being played out in 1776. In fact, the guy who wrote it, Jefferson, was a slaveholder himself. But America has been slowly over uh, 240 years, uh, in fits and starts certainly, moving toward that vision of a nation where, as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, we judge people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Obviously, we have a long way to go. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to minimize that at all. In fact, if anything, I'm emphasizing that. But the United States was created, even, even though our founding documents said all men are created equal, we were founded as a white ethno state, a state based on ethnicity, as an appendage originally, and then you know a, a separated appendage to white England, basically. And we put that into law in 1790. This was during the George Washington administration. We put into law the it was called the Immigration Act of 1790 that said that. White people can immigrate to the United States, but people of any other race can only immigrate into this country to the, to the extent that they represent 2% of their people who are already here. 
So we had this racist law it put into place in 1790 to, to basically limit virtually all immigration into the United States to white people. That stood until 1924. And in 1924, as, as I recall, I'll, I should check my own op-ed, it might be 1928, but let's say the 1920s. Um, that stood until the 1920s when we passed an updated Immigration Act, which not only created the Border Patrol, this was the uh, Naturalization Act of, of 1790, was the first one. The one in 1924 was called the Johnson-Reed Act, which created the Border Patrol. And, excuse me, in 1790, we said only white people could immigrate to the United States. In 1924, we said non-whites can immigrate to the United States, but only to the extent that they're 2% of the 1890 census. And that held until 1965. So, from 1790 till 1960 friggin' 5, immigration to the United States was limited by race. And in 1965, Lyndon Johnson, as part of his civil rights package, pushed through the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which today most Republicans and the entire white supremacist movement want repealed, which said that immigration into the United States henceforth shall be colorblind. And as a result of that, there have been, since 1965, a large number of people of color who have emigrated to this country. And you combine that with Reagan, the basically giving legal citizenship status to between 3 and 4 million Hispanic folks living in this country at that time. Now they're Americans. And as a result of that, the kids entering kindergarten now are majority non-white. Kids being born are majority non-white. You know, another decade and a half, it could be the voters are majority non-white. And this is making the Republicans nuts. This is making the whole white supremacy movement nuts. Because as Tucker Carlson keeps pointing out on Fox News, the big fear of the, of the whole white supremacist bunch is, oh my God, they're going to replace us. And if they do, they'll do to us what we did to them. We're going to have cops stopping white people and, and killing us. Right. That's, I mean, this is, this is their theory, right? So my question, you know, can America rise above racism and embrace a common vision, a higher vision of a common humanity? And, you know, I, I think it's possible. I, I'm very hopeful that it's possible. I think if, if, if uh, Republicans take the House or Senate in the 2022 election, and if a Republican takes the White House in, in 2024, all bets are off. Then we slide back into being a white ethno state, as we were during Trump for four years, temporarily during Trump. We basically froze all non-white immigration into the United States, and in fact banned it from a whole bunch of non-white countries. You recall, but this was done by executive order, and it's been reversed. So, can America finally live up to the second of the two promises that we made in the Declaration of Independence? The first being, hey, we can govern ourselves, we don't need no stinking kings. We've done that. The second being, who is this we ourselves, we the people? Oh, it's all of us. We're all created with equal opportunity under the law, equal, equal authority under the law. Equal, equal protection under the law, to paraphrase the 14th Amendment. Can we pull that off? 
And one of the reasons that this is so important is because America very often in these, in these regards leads the world. When we declared democracy in 1776, the world laughed at us. By the time of the Civil War, there was a handful of democracies, fewer than a dozen. And they all held their breath during the Civil War thinking, okay, this is it, this experiment is gonna die. Well, it didn't. And so now 123 of the 192 countries in the world call themselves democracies. We not only did that first promise to ourselves, not, when, not only did we do that in the United States, we got 123 other countries to go along with us. Can we do the same thing with racial equality? Can we become the example for the world? Or is that just way too far away for us? Can we pull this off in a generation or two? What do you think? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Talk radio colleague Egberta Willies in the next segment, and also Joe Madison. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club, Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson, who was a guest on our program a while back. Uh, this is from page 86. One of the great privileges of whiteness is not to see color, not to see race, and not to pay a price for ignoring it, except, of course, when you're called on it. But even then, the price pales quite literally in comparison to the high price black folk pay for being black. We pay a price, too, for not even being able to derive recognition and financial reward for the styles that make the world want to be black so bad that they don't mind looking like us as long as they never, ever have to be us. If the appropriators can freely rip off our culture with no consequences, those who revise racial history, the fourth stage of white racial grief, are even less accountable for their deeds. The way of the racial revisionist when it comes to black life and history is simply to rewrite it. Their motto is, it didn't happen that way. There's a flood of writing that tells us that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, but about an effort to defend states' rights. But, my friend... You've got to put yourself in our place and see the absurdity of such a claim. Defend the rights of states to do what? To enslave blacks. But even here, the irresistible logic of whiteness that is irresistible to whites themselves and to all of us who are subjected to white whim 
springs into full action. White American history is so powerful that even when it loses, it wins, at least in skirmishes within whiteness itself. From the right wing, there is the belief that the Civil War was fought over the ability of individual states to beat back a federal government out to impose its will. From the left wing, there's the belief that the Civil War was a conflict between the planter class and the proletariat. In each case, race as the main reason for the war is skillfully rewritten, or really written out. Slavery is rewritten too. Some white Christian apologists contend that black folk needed slavery to save their souls or to rescue their cultures. A contemporary twist on this argument radiates in thinkers like Dinesh D'Souza, who claims that American blacks brought here through slavery are now doing far better than their African kin. Some white critics argue that since blacks sold other blacks into slavery, bondage was a black man's problem, not a white man's burden. But revisionists would much rather describe the dehumanization of black folk as little more than a commercial transaction. It's another way of washing their hands of racial responsibility. The effort to rewrite history surfaces in how Malcolm X is treated in the mainstream. It hardly seems likely that the culture he fought with all his heart could be depended on to grasp his true meaning. Malcolm is often read as an apostle of violence, as a frightful figure, consumed by destructive rage. Yet the truth is far more complex, and Malcolm was far more complicated. But isn't the autobiography of Malcolm X so enduringly appealing because it shows Malcolm giving up hatred as a means to racial justice? Now, Malcolm X believed in the liberation of black folk from the mental and psychological chains of white supremacy. He was not committed to nonviolence as a way of life or as a method of social strategy. He believed that such a commitment prevents the full realization of black emancipation. Yet he was not personally violent. As Ossie Davis says in his eulogy, responding to the claim that Malcolm preached hate and was a fanatic and a racist, quote, Did you even talk to Brother Malcolm? Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? End quote. The rage that flowed in Malcolm's veins was the rage against a force of whiteness that aimed to wash its black kin from the face of the earth. The urge to rewrite black history occasionally gives way to the final stage of white racial grief, which is simply, when it comes to race, dilute it. That is, to argue that black stuff doesn't just plague black folk. To summarize, bad stuff happens to everyone. This argument surfaced in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And that storm certainly hit black folk, but it hit white folk, too. This is the sordid version of reverse American exceptionalism. It is the same Me Too impulse that flares in the bitter battle against affirmative action. Beloved, I can't help but notice that affirmative action is the bee in so many of your bonnets. You look around in your classrooms and you think every black person is there because they got an unfair shake from the system. You look at your job and you think that your black coworker got an unjust nod of approval from the powers that be. You never stop to think how the history of whiteness in America is one long scroll of affirmative action. You never stop to think that Babe Ruth never had to play the greatest players of his generation, just the greatest white players. You never stop to think that most of our presidents never rose to the top because they bested the competition, only just the white competition. White privilege is a self-selecting tool that keeps you from having to compete with the best. The history of white folk gaining access to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale is the history of white folk deciding ahead of the game that you are superior. You argue that slots in school should be reserved for your kin because, after all, they are smarter, more disciplined, better suited, and more deserving than inferior blacks. From Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. 
And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Egberto Willie. He is a, uh, an activist, radio talk show host, a blogger, a writer. His new book, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. EgbertoWillies.com is his blog. Politics Done Right is the name of his show. And PoliticsDoneRight.com is the website for that. You can tweet him at Egberto Willies. Egberto, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked on the air. Anyway, you and I talked on the phone on Sunday. I'm curious your thoughts on this question that I'm laying out that, you know, America at its, uh, at its birth made two declarations. One, that we can govern ourselves democratically. The second, that all people are created equal and should have equality under the law. That second one, we've never really, uh, until 1965, we really didn't do anything to embrace. I'm curious your thoughts on the possibility of America rising above being basically a, a white-run ethnostate. You know, I love the way that you started it, Tom, because the way you brought it in uh, earlier on, you said uh, we've accomplished the first part. How do we accomplish the second part? And I think what's interesting about that is while when the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was written, I think uh, they really meant what they said, right? All people are created equal. All that good stuff sounded right, but that didn't mean uh, they didn't consider the natives people. They didn't consider black people people. Uh, right. they, you know, deep in their hearts, there was something that didn't make those people people. So they were living to their creed. They just hadn't really considered the others real people. So what I really think is that you know, you have to start building, not on sand, but on rock. That's the kind of things that I learned when I was younger. Mm. So what I really think is that if you get all people to realize that all people are people, I think it is easier then to have all those tenets realized. So I think that is where, I, I think that is our biggest task. And uh, I think we've accomplished a lot of that, but there's a whole lot more to really let people believe that that is the reality. And that's substantial. I mean, while there is this debate, it's not even a debate, while the white supremacists are running around going, ah, white people are superior to everybody else, the subtext is not, you know, uh, the bell curve. The subtext is humanity versus inhumanity, is it not? Absolutely so. I mean, and I and I think that is the important thing. I, you know, on a lot of the things that I write on on the show, I always like to tell this little story. Right? I have a I have a black sister that there's a possibility. This is how I start establishing equal humanity. I have a black sister that there's a good chance that I couldn't give her a heart. But yet, Tom, you as a white person, there's a good possibility that your heart will work in her. So we, that, those are sort of the, the things that you first get around the cultural thing and get, around, get into the science thing that first gets the person realizing that sort of thing. And then after that, you can really get into the other things that make us equal. Now, you, you made an interesting point earlier in your show when you said that a lot of people are scared of equality because I think they really, a lot of people already understand the previous tenet that I brought up, but that question that you ask, are they going to treat me the way I treated them? Right. And to answer that, I have always used South Africa as an example, where I don't think the white people in South Africa who were really, really terrible 
to the natives for a long time. I don't see, right, and I don't see them going through any issues, really, right? Not in a big way. I mean, there there was some land distribution redistribution that some of them are right. upset about, but. But yeah, I you know I, I think South Africa has, although it's still struggling as a democracy, and 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 I think the the major struggle in South Africa is because when they wrote their constitution, IBM offered them some lawyers to help them out, and they wrote into their constitution that corporations are people. So they're dealing with an oligarchy problem in South Africa, but that's not a racial one. You know, it's a it's a multinational corporate one. Egberto Willis, uh, we we have a little less than a minute left. Your thoughts on how we best bring about this vision in America? Well, I think that the most important thing is that we don't lose hope. I don't want us to lose hope. I want people to start thinking, hey, we can accomplish this. Because you know what, Tom, if you take a look throughout the country, things are not as bad as you see on TV. I speak to many of my Trump voters in this red, very red area where I live. And I tell you what, uh, these people are people. And uh, the truth of the matter is when you speak to them on an individual basis, you find that there's a whole lot more in common. And I know that's a cliche, but guess what? That cliche is true. So I have a lot of hope. And with the work that you are doing and many others are doing by examining these issues, I think it really makes sense. And you can uh, check out Egberto's conversations like that over at politicsdoneright.com or egbertowillies.com. Egberto Willies, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. My pleasure, my friend. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. We'll be right back with, uh, you know, more of the news of the day in your calls. Can America achieve our second promise? You think? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Or are we going to just slide backwards into GOP hate, fear, division, you know, as a political strategy? And that's the end of that. So back in the day, and I mean back in the 1780s, literally when the Constitutional Convention was happening in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, there was this debate about the quality of the vote, whether people who only, you know, only landowners should be allowed to vote, stuff like that, in order to ensure that well-informed people who really care about voting are the only ones voting. It didn't pass. It was rejected by the framers of the Constitutional Convention, this idea that only landowners should be allowed to vote. Never made it in the Constitution. But a variation on this is now being proposed in the Arizona legislature. And uh, State Representative John Kavanaugh, who's the chair of, this, of the committee that's pushing this legislation, says the quality of the vote is important. We have to look at the quality of votes as well. I've got a new video all about this over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, uh, I had the COVID. You had COVID? You're over it? You're okay? Yeah, I'm over it. I was in the hospital probably eight, nine days. Oh, man. And when I was in there, I'm all right. When I was in there, I had a beautiful crew, man, nurses and stuff and everything. And they were very intelligent. You could talk to them. Of course, I was isolated, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Probably easier to talk to people under those conditions, and they were just awesome. That's great. Have you gotten a bill yet, Leslie? I'm, I'm hearing that people are getting ten, twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollar hospital bills after they get out after having COVID. I'm on Medicare. Oh, you're I'm on Medicare, Medicare, so you're you're in good shape. Okay, good. So, what'd you call about, Leslie? 
Oh, I was going to tell you that uh, I told one of the nurses about the brainwashing of my dad. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm going to go watch it on my break. Ah. So she goes and watches it. Yeah, she watched it on her break. And uh, she said, that was great. And before I was done, most of the people in there had watched it. That's incredible. How about that? That's great. Isn't it? Yeah. I thought so. So you're passing. And they learned a lot. They learned a lot from it, boy. Yeah. Well, Jen put together a hell of a movie, you know, The Brainwash of My Dad. It's a, it's a good one. It's an excellent one. Leslie, yeah, thanks a lot for sharing the story with us, and, and I'm glad that you're back among the land of the living. It's great to hear from you. Jose in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Jose, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. Well, What's you up? know, everyone's talking about January 6th. Hmm? And um, I think that this country does talks a lot of talk, but refuses to walk the walk. I mean, we talk liberty, we talk justice, but when it comes to when we have to carry it out, uh, no one wants to get any eggs out of their basket, you know. Uh, Unless it's for rich white people. Right. Then, then we right. have a very highly functioning, you know, criminal justice system that's not overly punitive, that very rarely imprisons people, that right. does, you know, a lot of slap on the wrist kind of stuff. All rich white people, jail, right? everything's good, right? But poor white people... And people, regardless of, of, of wealth or status or station, who, who are not white, all bets are off. And, you know, it just continues on internationally as an empire. Everything's okay as long as you're benefit, big guys are benefiting, and nothing else matters. So and it's not an insightful comment, just something I think, you know. Yeah. Well, the United States is an empire right now, and you know, and we 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 rarely ignore it, and we never discuss it. You know, is it time? In my opinion, it's long past time for America to do what the United Kingdom did after World War One, which is say, you know, this whole kingdom thing, you know, it's nice uh, sounding, but in practical reality, it is a pain in the butt, and uh, we're just not going to do it anymore. <laughs> you know, we're going to. We're going to let yeah, those countries yeah. go. And, you know, having over 700 military bases around the world is pretty damn breathtaking. You know, it's time, it's time to wake up. Jose, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. And uh, thanks for watching us there in Toledo. Tom Harbin here with you and Mike in Cleveland, Georgia. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind, Mike? Oh, I've been listening to you for a long time now, and I find you to be an inspiration in a lot of ways. Uh, but this, uh, <laughs> you're talking about with the torturing and whatnot. I've known for a long time that the seeds that we plant in the outer reaches of our empire are going to come home to roost. You can't do this stuff in a vacuum it doesn't exist you're right if it's not right to do it to your mom or daddy it ain't right to do it to your neighbor i don't know what these people are thinking but i think that fellow with the tax has got the right idea the folks that instigated this crap and peanuts right amongst them the people that instigated all that they need to be held by holy responsible for their doings or at least partially responsible right and instead I mean, we voted for the morons yeah and instead george w bush gave them a 5.6 trillion dollar tax cut you know we think the uh the the two trillion dollar tax cut that donald trump did was bad george w bush's was five and a half trillion dollars 
It's I mean, there were two of them actually, one in 2001, one in 2003, and they added up together to 5.6 trillion from that point till now. So Mike, spot on, spot on. I, you know, I think he said it very, very well. Hey, let me just do this, and then I'll get back to your calls. This is the uh, op-ed that we published over at HartmanReport.com on Saturday, and so I haven't had a chance to talk about it on the air yet. And uh, you know, it has a pretty simple title: Republicans are stealing the commons. And I started with Louis DeJoy, what he's doing with the post office. It's very simple, what he's up to with the post office. People are like, oh, what's the, what's, why would he do that? What's the nefarious plot? Well, it's real simple. They want to privatize it. They want to take it out of government hands and put it into the hands of uh, FedEx or one of Louis DeJoy's companies. I mean, Louis DeJoy is a multimillionaire who uh, owned, started and owned a company that was a contractor with the post office and in some ways competed with the post office. So, of course. Democrats want to expand the commons. That's the essence of Joe Biden's infrastructure plan, both the hard infrastructure, you know, the roads and bridges and broadband, and the soft in infrastructure, you know, daycare and college education and things like that. It's all about expanding the commons. Now, the commons, whereas Republicans want to eliminate the commons with the exception of the army, the police, and the courts. The commons is the stuff that we all use. Right, the air that we breathe, the water that we collectively drink. And, and in fact, typically, the system that brings that water to us was considered part of the commons. About half of the water utilities in the country are owned by the local communities. They're owned by the people. About half of all the power companies in America are owned by the people. The other half are owned by billionaires and big corporations. And what Republicans are trying to do is basically steal every part of the commons every part of America that isn't nailed down and turn it over to private enterprise, to, you know, to private corporations. Everything, you know, this is another one of these conversations that we just don't have in the United States. And I think it's just so wrong. And I think we, in part, we don't have this conversation because we haven't taught civics since the 1980s in our schools. And so a lot of people don't even know what the commons is or are. I guess the commons is a singular. In any case, uh, most people couldn't define the commons if you asked them to. It's the stuff we own collectively. Now, I don't want to expand the commons to include things like manufacturing facilities. I'm happy to have Apple Computer make my computer or to have Levi Strauss make my jeans. Don't want the government doing that. I've, you know, I've, I've been in countries where the, where the government literally made the blue jeans in the cars. I was in East Germany when it was in East, when it was East Germany. I was in the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union. You do not want that. On the other hand, I've also been in countries like Northern Europe. In fact, I lived in Germany for a year where the commons explicitly includes the entire healthcare system and the entire educational system. So college is something that is shared by everybody. It's basically free, or you, in Denmark, you actually get paid 200 bucks a month to go to college. And healthcare, everybody has free healthcare in all of these countries, or if not free, close to it. So what Joe Biden is attempting to do is redefine the commons out and up, but not into the area that you would literally call Marxist-style socialism or communism, but rather into democracy, into a functioning democracy, a highly functioning democracy like you see in Northern Europe, 
whereas the Republicans are trying to steal everything that's not nailed down and converted into profit. Rand Paul thinks we should do away with public roads. They should all be ro toll roads. You want to go out and drive around? Pay some money to a billionaire. All of our public utilities should be privatized. Our, the FAA should be privatized. The FDA should be privatized. The EPA should be private. All of it should either be done away with or handed over to the corporations. Turn Social Security and Medicare over to the big banks and the insurance companies. Everything will be wonderful. This is the Republican philosophy. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And increasingly, you know, people are waking up to this, that the Republicans just want to steal the commons from the rest of us. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Harbin here with you on the line with us is uh, Joe Madison, my colleague over on SiriusXM on the Urban View Channel, civil and human rights activist. JoeMadison.com is Joe's website. You can tweet him at MadisonSiriusXM. And uh, Joe, it's been a while since we've talked. It's great having you back on the program. Thanks for joining hey, us Tom, this morning. Thank you. Well, Joe, I laid out a theory this morning in an op-ed I wrote, and I was talking about it, and I wanted to get your take on it. And that is that America, in our Declaration of Independence, given you know the times, I mean, it was written by slaveholders, and we, we all get that you know, they, their language and their actions were very, very different things. But basically, the Declaration of Independence makes two promises. The first is that, or uh, yeah, two promises. The first is that people can govern themselves. We don't need no stinking kings or queens or popes. We can govern ourselves, thank you very much. And we've largely accomplished that, you know, over 240 years. The second is that all people are created equal and therefore should have equal opportunity under the law. Now, it doesn't lay it out like that in the Declaration, and the Constitution even contradicted that, as did early law for, you know, 100 years, 150, arguably 200 years. But is it possible that America could lead the world in accomplishing this? So, you know, we, we have a couple of what appear to be successful multiracial societies in South Africa, in Cuba, some argue Malaysia. 
but most of the world is made up of basically ethnostates. You know, you, you're a citizen of this country because of the way you look or who you are or where you came from, that kind of thing. Can America transcend that? Can we become the first really pluralistic, multiracial, multireligious society successfully and then become a standard for the world the way we have with regard to democracy over 240 years? Do you think that's even possible? And if so, how do we get there? Let's go back to the, the history. Let's start with history. Look, first of all, the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson, was a contradiction himself. I mean, let's, so let's, let's start there. And then believe that for all practical purposes that anybody other than white men could govern right. uh, or be governed. And, the, and so, you know, I think... That's what people have to understand. The other issue that you bring up is that even Lincoln, the great emancipator, didn't believe, and if you read Lerone Bennett's books and history from the great Lerone Bennett, the historian who worked for years, decades for Ebony Magazine, Mm -hmm. uh, he writes how reluctant even Lincoln was. Yes. But having said that, to answer your question directly, yeah, I think that the United States of America, as a government, as a society, can do just what you suggested. It can be done. No ifs, ands, buts about it. But as I was listening to, um, uh, just before coming on, your reading, the problem is it's up to the people. Those of us who understand that it can be done, we have to become activists. We have to take control of our uh, Congress. The propagandists are very good at what they do. I had a caller to my show who says, here's what they use, Tom. They dismiss, they discredit, they demonize, and then they destroy. Yeah. And that's what, that's exactly what the Fox, as you say all the time, the talk show haters are, mm-hmm. uh, the talk show uh, hate radio uh, guys, haters, yeah. hate radio guys, and Fox. And, and, and understand, when you were talking about uh, Germany, that's exactly what the Nazis did. They dismissed everybody, they discredited people who weren't with them. They demonized all the folks who wanted equality and opportunity, and then uh, they destroyed. Now, what I believe, what I hope would happen, and that is that I hope these uh, these folks who, who uh, we're talking about, I hope they destroy themselves. Uh, I mean, the, the Republican Party right now is in a shambles, and Tom, it is absolutely amazing, a year after... A year after George Floyd's uh, murder, that the only, only group holding up the passage of that bill, that meeting today at the White House, should have been a bill-signing ceremony. Yep. And there's only one reason it wasn't, and that is that you have Republicans who are more afraid of Donald Trump's base than they are of the majority of their constituents. Which is the right and white racist base in America, if I may interrupt. That is, that you, you are, one, no, you're not interrupting, you are absolutely 100% correct. Yeah. And, and so uh, 
that's 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 where we are. But I believe your theory. I believe uh, what you wrote today uh, is is absolutely right. So, but Joe, I think we also have to be honest about history. Oh yeah, I, and I'm trying to be <laughs> very much so. I mean, it wasn't until 1965 that we actually did away with racial quotas on immigration. I mean, you, you could really say that 65 was the year when yeah. America finally embraced this promise. So where would you begin with this? I, it seems to me like reparations would be a piece of this. You know, economic equality, we, uh, we have to put law into place. You know, we, uh, justice equality, we have to reform police. Where, where do we begin? Well, all of the above. All of the above. It's not a question of, of one and, or the other. It's all of the above. Right. You mentioned South Africa. Understand in, in that one of the things that South Africa did once it's, it, it uh, dismantled apartheid, they did what? They had a, 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 what they called truth and reconciliation. Right. What we've never had in the United States of America is truth and reconciliation. You're right. We have to have that. Now, what form does it take? Uh, I don't know. It may be that I don't know exactly what form it takes, but it's got to be more than just an intellectual exercise. Can you imagine Lindsey Graham having to get up and give a speech and apologize for, for the racism of the Republican Party, essentially in order to continue well, to be uh, a functioning member of society like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did? Hell, I can't even imagine Tim Scott doing it. <laughs> um, and, and the only thing, oh, I mean, the only thing I can, I, the only thing, look, the, the only thing I can imagine, Lindsey, what I imagine is, is Lindsey Graham one day being defeated. Yeah, and, I'm with and, and not in, uh, and not in, in Congress. And I bring up Tim Scott because uh, uh, Malcolm X always had, had a saying that whenever a black man uh, stands up and speaks out, uh, against racism and 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 and, and uh, white supremacy, they the other side always finds some other black person <laughs> to uh, contradict what they say. Right, that's part of history too. Race and reconciliation on a meaningful scale is what this country first has to do. Yep, I agree. I think that I, absolutely brilliant. The great Joe Madison. Joe, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you. And, and be sure to check out Joe's show. Hang on just a second. I'll give you the details. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Every weekday, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 126. Joe Madison, the Black Eagle. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Black Panthers, Portraits from an Unfinished Revolution, edited by uh, Brian Shea and Yohuro Williams. This is from Chapter 1, In Defense of Self-Defense, Pathways to the Black Panther Party. People joined the Black Panther Party for many different reasons. The moment of politicization was different for everyone, but a few were commonly shared, including the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and the 1965 Watts Urban Rebellion. A more general sense of frustration and alienation compelled others to join the Panthers' ranks. The party exerted enormous pull on the imagination of the members, especially those who had experienced police brutality. 
In the rebellious spirit of the times, the party's bold stance on self-defense resonated with those seeking fresh alternatives for achieving social justice and black liberation. Party members expressed a deep appreciation for other aspects of the Panthers program, including its community service programs, which grew out of a genuine love for the people. My neighborhood friend, a sister that I've known since I was about 11 years old, said, Claudia, I want you to go with me. We're going to go and hear these Panthers speak at PS92, which was an elementary school in our community. I said, okay, I'll go. I'm down. I listened to these brothers speak, and I heard the pitch. I saw the determination, and I saw the compassion. I thought, wow, this is the feeling that I used to get when I went into clubs and popped my fingers and got on the dance floor. It was the same feeling, except it was bigger for me now. It was bigger than me. It was full of love of the people. No longer did we have to argue and fight about, what are you looking at me like that for? Or don't step on my sneaker. Or, this is my block. Now we really had something to fight for. We had a people to fight for. This is bigger than any gang or club. We had a goal. We had something to look forward to, which was the betterment of black people. It was most definitely something that I was searching for, but I didn't yet know that I was searching. I didn't find it. It fell on me. That was the first meeting. That's what actually started the wheels in my mind for me to become political. I was rank and file. I did a lot of things. The easiest way to say it is just to imagine worker bees. You got one queen, everyone else works. Rank and file. Those were the worker bees. We did it all. The one thing I enjoyed the most was teaching the political education classes on 7th Avenue in front of the Harlem office. That was the most fruitful. But anything I did, it was for the love of the people. Wherever I was, wherever I was sent, or whatever I had to do, it didn't matter anymore because it was for the love of the people. We were trying to get the word out. If I had to sell 125 papers in a day and I got close to that goal, then I did a good job. I was originally from Queens and came out of the Corona branch of the Black Panther Party. When the Panther 21 were arrested and went to jail, in order to keep those offices open and functioning, Panthers were sent all over the city to Harlem. I was one of the Panthers that ended up in the Harlem branch. That's how I got to be there on Wednesday nights to give the PE classes, the political education classes. I was extremely nervous the first time, but once I found my voice, then it went like clockwork. A lot of the people in the community who were just walking by were like, well, let me stop and see what this little girl is talking about, because I was indeed a little girl at that time. We started off every P.E. class with a 10-point program, and we ended every P.E. class with, okay, let me hear from you guys. What do you want to see different in your community, and how are you living? Then we would get the feedback, and then we would know how to concentrate our efforts. Rent strikes were crazy, because if you had to live like that, why should you pay rent? We did clothing drives. We did food drives. We did, of course, the breakfast program. There were a lot of other things that happened, and they might have been more meaningful, but those P.E. classes stayed with me. We were outside on the street in front of the office. When you were giving a class or you were having a talk inside the office and there were only Panthers around you, the feeling was just different than outside on the street. The Panthers knew what you were doing because they were Panthers and they were doing the same thing. Outside, there were constant questions and answers with the people. You had to give yourself up when you were outside in that crowd. You never knew who was going to say, we don't care about that, we don't care about you, you need to go away. There were a lot of people that just did not know where we were coming from and were afraid that if they were seen in the office or if they were seen asking questions, that they'd get reprisals, that they'd end up getting hurt. They were afraid. Things went so fast. Time seems to accelerate when you're always looking over your shoulder. At this time, it was all-out war against the Panthers, and brothers were being shot down in the street or set up or going to jail for years. 
We have brothers in jail since that time, 40, 41 years. We've had brothers that we've lost on the inside that we can't let the world forget. The government said, okay, we're going to lock them up and throw away the key and no one will ever care. But it's not true. We want them out. We want freedom for all political prisoners. We don't want any more of them to die on the inside. That's the biggest injustice. There were times when our cadre consisted of almost nothing but women. And that was when the brothers were locked up or had to go underground. I remember being on a front line against a policeman on horseback and being six months pregnant. What we wanted was a simple street light. And we got the community out there and we blocked traffic. I didn't know whether I was going to be trampled, my baby killed, but I knew I had to be there. I was an active member of the party from 1968 to 1971, and in those few years, I aged 10, 15 years. We didn't have much time to be little girls. We went straight to womanhood. Talking about these things is bringing up all of these feelings, though I hadn't thought about or touched on them for a long time. It seems that as you get older and you look back on the things that you've done in your life, you say, oh my God, I could have gotten killed then. When you're young, fear is not really in your vocabulary, and once you look back, you wonder, why wasn't I afraid? We didn't have much time to be afraid. It was all about survival. The Black Panthers. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who help make this show work for you. And thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.